Uh, I trust all of you guys have your worksheets for tonight. The focus of tonight is not, I don't think, too contentious in the Good Solid Baptist Church, dealing with uh, creation and the fact that God did what he did just according to what he said. It's not too hard. So tonight is more of a, a preparatory night so that you're prepared for if anybody says, well, what about this or what about that, that you've got something solid to say, yep, heard about that before, here you go. Uh, a lot of the time people hear things, but they don't have a lot of understanding in them. So it's like, oh, well, the, the Bible's got an issue with such and such. That, that's what I was told. But if you have a very simple answer, they're like, oh, well, it's got a solution. Okay. And so most people don't have a, a serious depth of understanding in a lot of areas. But creation is one that people very quickly and easily will scoff at because it seems like a myth. And it seems too hard to believe. But if the true and living God is who he is, it's not hard to believe at all. Because he's God. So uh, that, yes, comes down to faith. But we have some reasonable answers when it comes to uh, facing these truths. So opening statement, uh, we'll get to right after we go through our theme verse. So if we could, together, Psalm 119.34, Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Very important. So opening statement is, we teach the creation story to our children as fact. As they grow, other beliefs contradict what they've been taught. So consensus in the scientific community is that that the creation event of the Bible is unscientific mythology. Now, every believer should be ready with a clear defense of Genesis 1 and 2. After all, if you can't trust the first page of the Bible, why should you trust the rest? And that's honest. And so when I've had people say, well, what about this or what about that? I said, there are answers. Now, this guy may not have them all right here to the drop of a hat, but there are always answers. And when you start on the first page, if you doubt that, you're going to be doubting the rest. It makes sense. I, I, I get very frustrated with people who call themselves Christians that will totally misinterpret and doubt the first couple chapters of Genesis and say, but I totally believe Jesus is God's son and died on the cross. Like, Well, th- th- that's good, but if you can't trust the beginning, why do you trust that part? You know, it, Either God is honest with you or he's not. Well, God is honest, so we're going to look at some of the simple responses to some of the, the main false teachings that are out there. So in our doctrinal statement under creation, it says, we believe that God created the universe in six literal 24-hour periods. We reject evolution, the gap theory, the day-age theory, and theistic evolution as unscriptural theories of origin. Now, you may be familiar with some of those things. You may not. We're going to give you the short and sweet of it tonight. Evolution, that's probably pretty familiar for most of us, but evolution, uh, as we look at it, uh, Charles Darwin, the father of modern evolution, was influenced by the views of prominent and progressive men, and there's a reason I went into a little bit of Charles Darwin's history. Uh, You'll see why in a moment. Darwin's observations were tainted by these views and were used to develop a theory that is still being presented as scientific fact, when in doubt it's not. 
Yet Darwin's theory is in direct contradiction of observable, proven scientific methods and findings. Furthermore, here come your blanks, this theory has been used to justify a flawed view of God and gives human life a dangerously low value. So it's more than a scientific theory, folks. It is the basis for a lot of very warped and dangerous views in our world today. Most folks won't say that, but if you really analyze what you believe and you follow it all the way down the path, it gets really, really dark. And it just supposedly makes sense to some people that you should look at folks of other skin colors or other nationalities with prejudice because they're lower life forms. You, you should totally look at abortion as being a natural thing because it's just a blob of matter, so who cares? Or you can look at euthanasia and say, well, they're just old and they're not useful or they're handicapped and they're a burden. Get rid of them. Population control. You know, there's way too many of us on this earth and we're killing mother planet, so let's just off a whole bunch of folks and that makes sense for the future. I mean, these are dark, scary philosophies, but folks that value and uphold and believe evolution very easily get to these positions. Now, not everybody. Most folks don't really think scientifically enough to realize, man, this evolution stuff is garbage. But those who do, they're scary. Um, justified a lot of things. In fact, uh, the next few weeks, we're going to be getting into some other more uh, sensitive topics in our doctrinal statement that addresses government, that addresses sexuality, that addresses abortion, uh, euthanasia. A lot of these things are springing from and justified by this philosophy. Dangerous stuff. So ideas have consequences. And I want you to see how Charles Darwin was influenced to get to this place. So if you don't think your friends and your education are important, look at this guy's life. So Erasmus Darwin was Charles Darwin's grandfather. He was a very well-known, prominent physician. But the guy's philosophy on things was dangerous. He believed that animals can develop into other types of animals. Now, at this time point in the early 1800s, there is a huge war going on between these newer progressive thinkers and old-school religious thought. And sadly, a lot of the old-school religious thought was coming from a hypocritical hierarchy of a church. So a lot of this infighting or outfighting or whatever you want to call it uh, was political, it was vicious, but there were a lot of folks saying, you know what, I'm done with this hypocritical church, I'm thinking of things my own way, and when that happened, they started opening them, themselves to some of these views. And at first, they were not very popular, but more and more people started thinking them, and it wasn't put down properly, and so it spread. Again, poisonous, cancerous, erroneous thinking. So Darwin had one of these guys in his home. Uh, Charles Darwin actually had a mentor in his young life by the name of Robert Grant, who had a philosophy that all life comes from a common ancestor. So a lot of these guys were scientists. They liked to observe the natural world. But your personal belief systems about God are going to determine how you deal with the, in, uh, the information in front of you. Two people could look at the same natural situation and see it from totally different perspectives. 
So these guys, being more humanist in their view, were looking at information that should have been pointing them to God, because God's fingerprints are on everything. But instead, they were looking at it from a, a warped perspective. And they said, well, I see all these animals, and I think they all came from the same original animal. And with granddad saying, well, yeah, animals can develop into other animals. Young Charles is getting different ideas implanted in his head. So then he looks up to guys like Charles Lyell, who is a biologist, who is looking at uh, different natural phenomenons like rock layers and things. And he says, well, if we look at the rock layers and we study all that, uh, geology and whatnot, we see that slow, continuous change affects our world. So now some of these philosophies are starting to layer themselves and forming up ideas. And then uh, a very famous naturalist and biologist and author and, and actually soldier, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, he says, well, animals and plant traits actually develop because what is needed in their environment is going to develop. And then it's going to become more complex. Now, that sounds interesting, and I can kind of understand, you know, if you're in a certain cold environment, you know, what's going to happen? You got a bunch of dogs, the long-haired, fluffy dogs are going to stay warmer, and they're probably going to survive. And the short-haired, little, tiny dogs, probably going to die off. So what are you going to get? One certain type of animal that's able to survive in that environment. So part of what he says has some merit, but where Lamarck went so wrong is he says now those traits are going to become more complex. If you go to the very, very basic principles of science, like the laws of entropy, first, second, third law of thermodynamics, fancy stuff, which basically says if you've got a natural situation, everything's going to go to pot. Like literally, you, you throw a car out in the middle of a field and you come back in 80 years. Is it going to be in gorgeous shape, full of gas and running better than when you left it? Or is it going to be deteriorated rubber, rust holes, filthy and not running because it's all seized up? Are things going to get better by themselves or get worse? Everything in this universe left to itself goes downhill. That's a fundamental law of science. And this great naturalist and biologist must have forgotten that. Because all I see is things get better. I'm like, really? Could you give me an example? Because everything else is going to pot, bud. Fellows like Thomas Malthus was a big influence on Darwin. This guy was a political economist. Now, what he says in all of his studies and writings is that you have societies, and when those societies grow more food and food is plentiful, then the population gets bigger. I'm like, well, that's brilliant, yeah. Okay, so when the population gets bigger, then you can produce more food. All right, I'm following you so far. But then as your society gets bigger, then the poor class starts to be, uh, uh, is more prone to sickness and, and being dumped on in society, and then things get worse. Like, okay, where did we go there? He says, now because of all of that, you now have a survival of the fittest people in society, and then you have this lower class of people that aren't able to survive, and really they ought to just be cut out so that the strongest can continue to grow. 
Now, that's kind of a scary way of looking at society. If you're weak and you're poor, you're not as fit or as valuable. See, these philosophies that make these guys sound so smart are actually kind of scary when you start to follow them all the way out. Alfred Russell Wallace, also a very famous biologist of the day, because Charles Darwin fancied himself as a biologist, so he's listening to all these guys and studying nature. And Wallace says, well, if you have an environment, that's going to naturally select which plants and animals are going to survive or flourish. So that kind of makes sense with what some of the other guys said. But what you have here is the layering of all these philosophies. It says, well, this one guy said all animals are related to each other, and granddad said they can develop into one another, and if you have an environment where the strongest survive and the weak get rid of, you know, because they're not as valuable or important, and your, your, your environment's going to dictate everything, then he starts to put all of this together, does all this study, actually has a little bit of competition from other biologist writers, and says, well, I better get my thoughts out into a book before these other guys get credit, because we're all starting to think that everything evolves from one kind of animal into another, and the weak stuff isn't worth keeping around anymore, and he sounded very intelligent, wrote a book, became real popular. Everybody thought he was the bee's knees. And so he's actually having this contradiction between himself and religion. Darwin was an agnostic. He became more and more bitter toward God as life went on because he had children die from sicknesses and all these other situations. So he was trying to, to kind of play the fence between actually saying what he believed that if there is a God, who cares, and everything just develops on its own, and trying to please the, the main crowd that says, you cannot say stuff like that because it goes in the face of, of recognized religion. So it, it's quite a mixed-up situation. But again, this guy had a lot of influences in his life. He listened to some very educated and very wrong voices. And because of his own heart issues and looking at this world in a very humanistic way, he came to some really messed up conclusions. And those conclusions are being taught as fact even to this day. It's dangerous and it's poisonous. And so what we're seeing nowadays, and we have for the last probably 30, 40 years, is an effort to stick this evolutionist mentality or methodology and marry it with the Bible. We're going to look at that in just a second. Uh, before we do, I want to shock you a little bit and say I actually believe in evolution, but the scientific kind. So let me describe to you something that will probably make you sound very intelligent to people uh, that don't understand this. Here's your first blank. Make sure it's popped up there. Macroevolution. This is what Charles Darwin said happens out in the world, even though he couldn't find any evidence of it. All right, macroevolution, large evolution, does not exist. This is the process of one animal kind developing into a different kind. Folks, that never happens in nature, ever. A dog is a dog is a dog. A tree is a tree is a tree. A fish is a fish is a fish. Now, you have different types of fish, different uh, dogs, different types of trees. But you do not ever see any jumping from one kind into a different kind. You don't get dogs that turn into cats over time. 
You don't have trees that turn into other stuff over time. I mean, it it does not happen. That's what macroevolution is. Big stuff turning into other big stuff. Now, no fossil or observable example has ever been found in nature. Now, once in a great while, you'll have somebody that read a few scientific articles and say, well, what about the Cleocanth, that, that fish that has legs developing? Or, or what about that, uh, that bird pterodactyl thing that they found a fossil of? They have found a few really unique critters out in this world, but you'd never find anything that solidly proves transitional forms, ever. Now, if this has been happening and we have all of these animals that have developed throughout the millions of years, because evolution has got to have lots of time to do anything, then they would be all over the fossil record and we'd be able to observe, like that's like right in between these other animals and that's happening right now. You don't. So the, the two clearest proofs that the evolution is, is real, macroevolution anyways, you cannot find. Here's the situation. What, besides time, you've got to have added information to an animal's genetic code or to a plant's genetic code. In order for a bird to turn into a reptile or a reptile into bird, you've got to have DNA added so that the feathers now have scale DNA or opposite. They've said, well, scales actually changed over the years and developed into feathers. Well, that takes new genetic information. According to the law of thermodynamics, everything is going downhill. You get less information as you go. So changing from one form into the other is impossible because you have to have a way to stick new information into the DNA. And that does not happen. Now what you do see is less and less information in animals. That's a totally different and scientifically trackable process. That's called microevolution. But I tell you what, you, tell, you give a bunch of kids articles like this, cool pictures, scientific jargon from a, quote, doctor, PhD, and kids are going to say, well, I guess that's true because it's in my school books, when it's total garbage. So many of the scientific, quote, proofs of transitional forms and eight men that we had in our science books when I was young, in high school, my teacher said, oh, by the way, every single one of these has been proven wrong. Every one of them. And yet they're still in the science books. Still there, 10, 20, 30 years later. Well, you know, you can't crank out a, a new edition every year. You know how many editions have been cranked out of these science books since that was first published and been proven wrong? But they still put them in there. I guarantee you, if you've got a new uh, gender spectrum, they've got that in a brand new textbook for the, the school year before you can say how it's not. But it, getting error out, it never happens. It's sad. Now, microevolution is a real thing. That's an interesting term, and, and I know this, the word evolution scares people, but that is an actual change or adaptation of an animal, but just on a specific level. So this process occurs when a, sci- uh, excuse me, a specific genetic trait, which is already found in that animal or plant's DNA, becomes dominant. These traits are brought out through natural causes like breeding. 
Here's your word that you need to stick in that blank. This is the word that makes sense of microevolution. This type of adaptation is observable, controllable, and designed by God. This is the phenomenon that Darwin observed throughout his travels and studies. So dogs are a great example. Uh, They're very easy. Um, In fact, Osmers, what kind of dog do you guys have? Miniature pincer, okay? We've got uh, a Burmese mountain dog with an English collie in it. Those two dogs are nothing alike. Huge size different, coat different, all sorts of stuff. Now, if you start to look at dog DNA, and they've done studies like this where you say, all right, what is like the most common animal? It's basically a wolf, okay? So you go back, and that animal has got tons of information it's like the, the super predator. But if you take those dogs and you start to breed because you want a certain trait, you want long hair. So you start grabbing all the, the, the wolves that are come off, you just keep the ones with long hair. Pretty soon you've got a long-haired breed because you've cut out the ones with the short hair. Well, that's what we wanted. We had a smaller dog with shorter hair. So you just keep those dogs, you keep breeding those dogs, and now that's the dominant trait. You've not added information. You've just cut out the traits you don't want. So you're losing info. So when you start to, to look at charts like this, you have this wolf at the top and you know European breeds, Northern American breeds, Chinese breeds, Indian breeds, and then you get all the way down to all these smaller breeding sections. Basically, you get all the way down to a pug, which is like genetic garbage. Sorry, if you've got a pug, there is no good use for a pug. Short-haired because they get cold. Too tall to get anything. That's a poodle. Well, they're actually some big poodles. Ah, they're they're kind of iffy, too. They're kind of like well-groomed squirrels. But it's like there's no purpose besides it's cute and it's expensive. But it doesn't do anything. You've actually genetically pulled everything good out of these things. I don't know. If you got a pug, I'm sorry. You spent too money on a, a weird little dog that probably came out of a can. If you look at it... <laughs> And it popped legs out. Doesn't do anything. It's got sinus problems. It's not useful. Sorry. <laughs> if you got to open your dog's nose. Yeah. See, we've uh, refined breeding. No, you've messed up a perfectly good animal. So that, that's really all that is. <laughs> Call them mutt. Yeah, but folks, we understand these things. We just don't know the scientific backing behind them. You pull information out, you can get specifics, but you can't ever add information naturally. So a lot of these principles, if you think about them realistically, show you that evolution is an impossibility. It just is. So you you just got to think logically, which... A lot of people don't because that might logically take you to there being a creator. Yeah. Exactly. Two dogs that have all that information on the ark, and then when they get off, you can start doing breeding and specify different things, and that's why they didn't have to have tons and tons of room on the ark, even though they did. They had lots of spare room on the ark. That was for people, and the people didn't want to come. There's also some information in the Bible that says when God created 
That's actually one of the requirements for being able to differentiate some of those specific kinds. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like crossbreeding uh, certain fruits and stuff, like an orange and a peach to get a nectarine. Let a nectarine, if you take that seed and plant it, it won't grow a nectarine. And see, that's why the, the natural situations, that's the way it works. When man gets involved and starts doing some of that genetic wizardry, you can get some funky stuff, but even that doesn't work, whether it be with animals or with fruit or whatnot. So microevolution is something God put in animals. They have lots of DNA sitting in there with possibilities. I mean, there are dogs that are all over the world because those traits allow them to live in those environments. There are plants that are able to live in certain parts of the world because they're able to adapt to a certain amount. So God put that diversity, that information in there genetically. So we can observe those things, but when Darwin looked at that and he said, well, just in these uh, islands, you've got birds with different beaks and they're for specific uses, that must be evolution in progress. No, it's God-designed adaptation because that bird is always going to be a bird. Always. You're never going to get a lizard out of that bird. doesn't matter how long you follow it. It's just not going to happen. Otherwise, we would have seen evidence of it. So evolution at the core is unscientific, and you've got to have more faith than a Christian to believe in it, to be honest, because you've got to go straight in the face of empirical science. But here's what happens. We have something called theistic evolution. And this theory says that God used his power to manipulate the macroevolutionary process. Such an idea falls apart under biblical and logical examination. So let me give you two arguments that make this very, very simple. That if, if you actually get somebody who said, well, well, what if God used evolution? That, that's actually a pretty common statement. Here's what you say. Well, let's try a logical argument for that. Okay, Dar- Darwinian evolution relies on time to change or develop things. <laughs> Even though it doesn't, that's just what they say. So it it relies on time. The plant life of creation day three came before the sun with its light and warmth on day four. So literally all plant life would have died millions of years before God provided the sun. So does that logically work? If God, according to Genesis 1, did it in that order and used millions of years, it would have failed. Okay, that, that's not too hard to puzzle your way through. Well, what about the death argument? Uh, for that, I'd like you guys to uh, turn to Genesis, and we'll just stick you there. If we have any outside verses, I'll show those to you real quick. I've got to get moving here because I want to make sure that you guys have some chance to do this study sheet tonight. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17 This verse could not be true if millions of years of death had already existed. Genesis 2.17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely, what's the next word? Die. God said this is where death starts. Cross Cross the line, break the rules, death will start. 
But if God used millions of years to get them to that point, there would have already been death. So the death argument is pretty clear. Also, God would have had to consider that world, which would have been full of sickness and violence and murder and death of all these animals fighting for survival. He would have to consider that very good. That's kind of a warped view of being very good if everything's killing each other. Because when God created everything, they were all created as herbivores. And everybody got along. It wasn't until, hmm, sin, and then everybody starts fighting and killing each other. (laughs) People included, animals as well. You can actually go into the fossil record and find fossils of animals eating other animals, of cancer, of all sorts of situations. It's right there. Hardcore evidence that you can hold and look at and think about. But if somebody says, I don't want to believe that, they don't have a problem going to evolution, which to me, that is so illogical. So now, people try to get all theological, and they'll say, well, what about the the day-age theory? Now, this is one that says, it's kind of that theistic evolution where we look at Genesis chapter 1, and whenever it said that that was a day of creation, God was actually talking about a big time period. And so they're, they're trying to put a, a theological face on theistic evolution. Well, that doesn't work either because you can't say linguistically, and that's your word there, linguistic, there's an argument against that, the linguistic argument, that the Hebrew word for day, which is yom, is used literally thousands of times in the Old Testament. Now, Hebrew is kind of a cool language. Uh, I didn't get to study that in college. Probably wouldn't have done well. Um, my wife would have done a fantastic job at it. Uh, but I do know that Hebrew is very contextual. One word can have different meanings, but you look at the sentence, and it's like, oh, well, that's the obvious meaning. So what you do is you take that word yom, which is day, and every time that the context is clearly talking about a period of time and you've got a numerical number adjective attached to it, it's always talking about a 24-hour period every single time. makes it very, very clear. So when you have a a phrase uh, like we find in Genesis 1-5, let's just grab the very, very first one. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Clear context, it's talking about a time period. First day, that's got the number on there. It's a 24-hour period. And and that's actually repeated on the second day in verse 8. And then the third day in verse 13, and so on throughout the entire consistent passage. So it's very, very clear this is the linguistic argument is there. Now here's my problem. One of the websites that I like to look up different commentary thoughts on, uh, gotquestions.org, is normally right on. And they agree, you know what? The, the context, we think, it's our opinion that this is talk about a 24-hour period. Well, guys, it's really not a, an opinion. I mean, that, that's linguistically accurate. But here's what they say, and this is where I have a problem. They say, sincere believers debate the meaning of yom in the creation account because a case can be made for both sides. Actually, not really. All right, this does not diminish the importance of what Genesis teaches. 
regardless of whether or not a person accepts young earth creationism. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does cause a problem because what you're reading isn't what you say it's saying. You're saying it says something different. So either it says what it says or it doesn't. So I would argue, yes, folks, this does make a big deal. If God says it's a 24-hour period, then take him at his word. It's a 24-hour period. Well, isn't it kind of hard to believe that God could create all that stuff in just a 24-hour period? (laughs) No. He created the whole thing. For him to do it in a short period of time is probably not a stretch. And he's God for crying out loud. Which is why in Hebrew culture, their day starts at noon. It's it's the evening starts their day, goes through the night, and then the morning completes their day. We go the Roman way and, you know, sun up starts our day. They do it the opposite because of that very verse. So that makes, makes sense to me. Now, there is also one other argument, and this is the Sabbath argument. You know, did God really mean a 24 hour period? Well, absolutely he did. Uh, because in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 10 and 11, also in chapter 31, verse 16 and 17, it says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So he set up the Jewish work week according to the same design as his creation week. Now, if you start to say, well, each day in creation is a huge epoch of time, and you work, link that up with your work week, man, that would be fantastic for the weekend. It would last for millions of years. But then you get back to first day of the week, and it's like, man, I got millions and billions of years before we get to the next weekend. You know, that does not sound like fun to me. So God clearly linked those things together, and... God is very consistent throughout his word. It's not that God has a problem communicating, folks. It's that we have a problem with faith. If he said he did it that way, that makes sense. If you start pulling this reinterpretation symbology junk on page one, then anytime you run into a situation where you need to up your faith, you're just going to pull that same garbage and say, well, Jonah didn't really get swallowed by a whale. That was just symbolic of something. Or there really wasn't a worldwide flood. That was just symbolic of something. No. We're dealing with the God of this universe. And when he says miracle, that miracle happens. He created the scientific process and scientific principles. He is outside of it. He is greater than it. And he can change those principles however he wants. But it's there. So we just need to look at it with faith. Now the last one is very short. Um, this is kind of weird, but I can see where people could get off track if they're not careful. There's something called the gap theory. This theory teaches that a struggle during the fall of Satan actually destroyed God's original creation. 
that devastation occurred between the verses of Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. The phrase without form and void in Genesis 1-2 is said to reflect all of that. Thus, Genesis 1-3 begins the second creative effort of God. Now that sounds really interesting and makes a person sound really smart, but where in the world are you getting all that information from? That's coming out of your imagination, and that scares me. If you start sticking huge events in between verses, my Bible has a blank in between those two verses, which means God didn't say what happened, which means you better not be telling me what happened, because it didn't, okay? The elements of the death argument above and a complete lack of biblical support cancels that theory completely in my mind. But... Mm-hmm. See, I have a Schofield Bible, and I have a whole bunch of that stuff crossed out in my Bible because the commentary notes are people notes. I trust the Bible part. You've got to be very, very careful what people say. You know, I don't know everything. Um, I don't present myself as a know-it-all, but I can look at the Bible and I can think and say, that very educated guy is wrong. <laughs> because God does not say that stuff happened in verse 2. And if you have wars and fighting and destruction, no, that, I, I, I'm not going to accept that. It's scary. friend a Hebrew scholar that he can start pulling ling- no, linguistics yeah there are so therefore when you guys hear some of these theories you may never have heard of a gap theory or theistic evolution or everything you've heard of it now and it's very simply refuted so don't get all scared about people pulling out these fancy terms because there are simple answers for it. So if God said it, just roll with that. So now I would like to challenge you guys to you know, take the next uh, 11 or 12 minutes and group up because we need to not only be ready to actually dialogue about things like this and be very understanding, you know, never attack somebody like, ooh, blood in the water, they believe some of this stuff, I'm going to get them. No, just be very careful, mature, and loving about it, but just show them, well, logically, biblically, linguistically, that just doesn't make sense because God is trustworthy. But also, uh, I want you to think about some of the scientific things that are, are in the Bible. 
And so when people say, oh, you just believe in that religious stuff, I'm like, well, actually, I could show you a couple verses that have some scientific stuff that popped up way before scientists ever discovered it. Well, you didn't discover it. You finally figured it out. God said it a long time ago. So a little humility aspect, but uh, just to get some practice in, in looking in your Bible and being able to answer some of these common uh, situations and topics. All right, so get at it.